Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at recruiting and consulting firm RiderFlex. If you think today's tip or guest interview can help someone you know, please share this with them. And if you enjoy listening to our show, please subscribe to our channel and hit the like button on the episodes. Finally, aside from our podcast, our day job here at RiderFlex is to provide recruiting, staffing, and consulting services. You can visit riderflex.com to learn more about us and get the information on the services we provide. And now, a quick word from our sponsor and friends at Marketing 360. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Brady Harris on the RiderFlex podcast. How you doing, Brady? Steve, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you, man. I uh, yeah, I too. like the like your profile, like your story. I always love it when when people just move up and kick ass in their career, and then they eventually make C level. And then once they do make C level, they're like, "Oh shit, I'm I'm a C level executive. What do I do now?" <laughs> well, don't get too don't get too impressed. I made most of those titles up along the way. Half of them. I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate the compliment. Great to be connected. I want to get into Dwalla and all of that, but before we do, let's talk about Brady Harris, the person. Can you give us some family, you know, where you grew up, mom, dad, siblings, stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah, I would, yeah, I would love to. So I'm a, I'm a Salt Lake City, Utah boy. So uh, typical big Mormon family, grew up with eight siblings uh, there in Salt Lake. And um, yeah, finished high school. I left the country for a couple of years to to St. Petersburg, Russia, right after high school. Wow. And then, uh, yeah, I came back and jumped right into payments, married my, my high school sweetheart at the time. And uh, that would have been 2000, 2001. And we moved up to the Pacific Northwest, kind of the Portland area, and then Seattle. And, uh, and we've been crisscrossing the country since then. So we've got four kids and uh, we've lived everywhere, Seattle and Portland, Utah, Atlanta, Georgia. And then we relocated uh, out to Des Moines, Iowa, where Wallace headquartered about a year ago. So yeah, mm. I got a great, great 20 year, 20 year run or so here. Why the, uh, the Russia connection? I mean, was your family Russian? Is there, yeah, talk to me about that. Yeah, no. So, uh, if, if you know Utah, it's got, it's got a pretty big LDS okay. or Mormon population. You've seen the guys with oh, the black yeah. name tags, white shirts, yeah. So that's, that's where I did my two year, uh, church mission. You know, you get assigned, oh. you don't get to choose your area. Oh, really? So, I didn't know. Yeah. That. So it was, it was awesome. You know, you're, you're graduating high school and instead of going and making bad decisions at a fraternity somewhere, you're in some third world country for a few years. So it was a great, great experience and opportunity. And I, yeah, I got assigned to, uh, to Russia. So I was able to go now, spend a few years in St. Petersburg. At first we were like, no, like, no, Russia. No, I don't No, No. What? Well, it, it wasn't my first choice. It wasn't my last, but you know, when I opened that letter, I was like, as long as it doesn't say something like Boise, Idaho, I don't want to offend anyone from Boise, Idaho. It's a great city. So I'm just, <laughs> but, you know, Boise, Idaho or a Reno, Nevada. So yeah, it was a little bit of a little bit of a shock uh, going to Russia, but it, man, what an amazing experience. I, I still reflect on it to this day. Just really, really cool opportunity. Is that why you came back and decided to get a bachelor's in Russian 
from yeah. the University yeah, of Utah? You, okay. You did you did your homework. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you're fairly fluent by the time you by the time you come home. And um, I actually for a handful of years, I, I went into the, the army while I was oh. finishing college up. And, oh, uh, really? and so I, I did interrogations in the army and you, you have to have a second language as an interrogator. So I oh. used Russian and then, yeah, I was able to, to do an undergrad there at the University of Utah and then go on to do graduate school and stuff. So, yeah, you kind of got Russia, you got the bachelor's degree, you have the military piece and they kind of they all came together so now interrogations you weren't like waterboarding guys and stuff were you <laughs> well i can't i can't say publicly you know it's 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 funny um so i was you know i was in uh mi military intelligence during a lot of the iraq and afghanistan wars really and oh. it, it, so what what most people don't know about interrogations really interesting is it's very relationship based you know you don't get a lot of actionable intelligence by kind of the Hollywood version of interrogating someone it's through building relationships, mm. you know, with the, the detainee it's with, you know, establishing trust. It's, it's all these kind of, um, mm. yeah, mm. maybe mm. softer methods that that's meant to build like real relationships with someone. And hopefully, you know, out of that, uh, you're, you're able to, to get the information that you need, but it's, it's very psychological. It's very relationship based, super, super fascinating science that goes into it interesting that yeah that's fascinating plus you had all the russia stories too now you said you had a high school sweetheart so let me back up for a minute so you got this high school sweetheart what you dated her like when you were junior senior all that that's right yeah okay. junior okay. and senior yeah all right and then and then you open the letter and you're like uh i gotta go to russia i guess i'll see you in two years and what, what and you maintained the relationship long distance she didn't start dating somebody well, else in college yeah, that's a really smart question. I thought we maintain it. She was off dating all kinds of people and having a fun college experience. And so, yeah, you've you've got this. I, I come marching back from Russia thinking everything was the same, and she uh, mm. she was like, "Well, mm. let me tell you about the last two years on my mm. end." So, <laughs> but it worked. Mm. It worked out. Yeah, we we were we were meant for each other and dated for about six or nine months and. Yeah, I got married and been going strong since. Uh, that that that's pretty good. Now, let me ask about your 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 mom and dad. What your what your folks do? Well, your yeah, mom so had dad, your mom had your mom had eight kids, so I know what she did. <laughs> yeah, my my mom. Uh, yeah, she she was a she was a champion. My my dad was uh, actually a, a major in the army, so oh, we we moved right. we moved around you know the army thing growing up until we settled back in Utah, mm. and uh, my mom was a stay at home, and yeah, I'm the oldest of. Uh, well, I'm the second oldest of eight. Fun fact. So I have six brothers and all of us uh, went and served, you know, church missions around the world. And then everyone went into either the army or Marines. So we, we all really? kind of followed. Yeah. Kind of followed each other there. And now everyone's off on wall street and doing all kinds of really cool stuff. So well, your parents, your parents, your parents must be super proud. I mean, nobody went to jail. No, nobody, there was no rebel in there. You didn't have like one rebel. Uh, no, I mean, it's pretty tame. I mean, they're, they're proud, but they're tired. So they, you know, you, you raise eight kids, like you're, you're done towards the end, but oh, I yeah, bet, everyone right? turned out really well. So we were lucky. Congrats, congrats to them. If they're, they're both still alive. Yep. Yep. They're in Salt Lake. Well, if they're listening to this episode someday, by the way, we're recording this on January 6th, 2022. Uh, if they're listening, congrats. I mean, eight children all turned out to be successful and nobody got in trouble. I mean, Hey, that's, that's pretty damn good. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll pass that along. That's nice. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. So you're, you're doing this, you, you majored in Russian, you're back here, you talked your girlfriend into 
you know, coming, you know, coming back to you and you're, you're doing these interrogations and stuff. Did you know what you wanted to do for a living? Like, what were you thinking at the time? No, you know, I, as I'm sure your audience has heard, I, I mean, rarely is, is your career and your life a straight line. It, it right. makes sense in, in retrospect. You know, you can look in your rearview mirror and say, okay, mm -hmm. I see how these like series of events led, you know, one to another. And it, it makes sense sequentially. I really mm -hmm. didn't, you know, right after we got married, it's my early 20s. Um, you know, I paused on school for a bit. And, and my wife, she's super adventurous. She said, let's move up to Portland, Oregon, get into the at, at the time, what we called the payments industry. Why? And, uh, and just why that? Why did I, she want to do that? Yeah, you know, she um, we we wanted an adventure. So newlyweds, you know, get out of get out of our hometown. And we had visited Portland, and she loved it. There was a great job opportunity, you know, in sales. And so she said, "Why not?" We literally packed up the Honda Civic. I, I it's not an exaggeration to say we had maybe five hundred dollars to our name at the time, and. <laughs> She said, what do we have to lose? Let's go have an adventure and let's go uh, go somewhere new. And um, and that job that, that I took was ultimately the gateway that led to a, a really nice 15 year prosperous career with that company. And that kind of set off a, a series of events, you know, professionally speaking. So we got okay. really lucky there. OK, so what was it? What was that? Elliott Management Group? Is that what that that's was? Right. Yeah, yeah, Elliott Management right. Group. So that's what you moved up there. Now, I got to tell you, culturally, from Utah to Portland, Wow. I mean, <laughs> holy cow. You went from like conservative to anything goes. <laughs> yeah. You know, Port Portland back. Uh, I mean, there was, you know, Portland was eclectic for sure. But um, I think it's got increasingly, uh, they always say keep Portland weird is kind of their tagline. Yeah, they, and they've right. moved up to it for sure. But <laughs> it's gotten weirder. It was kind of weird when we were there, but um, okay. it's yeah, yeah, really cool experience. Cool city. Yeah, for sure. Great run. Tell us about uh, Elliott Management Group. So you started out there, wow, back in what, 2001 as an account executive. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, fancy word for, for sales, commission only sales person. <laughs> You're right. Right. You know, making a, making 100 cold calls a day and knocking mm. doors on the weekend. And yeah, you know, it was a, it was a really gritty role. I, I was young and motivated, had, had a new wife and, a, you know, a family that depended on me. But uh, it was incredible, you know, just developed a, a real appreciation for work ethic and got to learn how to socialize with people. And I always give the advice that if you have an opportunity, regardless of your field, to, to start in sales, it, it's a great way to, um, you know, develop some of those skill sets, those soft skills that you'll carry into whatever you do. So Several, was, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So it was, um, yeah, you know, I think at the time I was first maybe 20 employees, smaller company. And um, mm. we just, you know, we really hit the right industry. The company started growing really quickly. And uh, I think through a series of a decade and a half, I had probably seven or eight promotions and then ultimately ended up as, you know, president and CEO of, of that company. We were, you know, nationwide at that point, we had 30 plus branch offices and a hundred million revenue. So it was just that amazing, like once in a lifetime opportunity that right business, right time, you know, had a decent work ethic and was able to go along for the ride and just have a, uh, have a really cool experience seeing a company go from pretty much startup to a hundred million. So it was great. Yeah. Startup to a hundred million, 350 plus employees, several promotions all the way up to CEO. Was it family owned? Was it owned by PE firm? What was the history there? Yeah. So the original founders were, 
it's funny, three frat buddies from the University huh. of Utah. So it was headquartered out of Utah. Okay. And, um, you know, guys in their mid twenties, late twenties, and they just hustled and man, they did, they did an amazing job and brought in a lot of really good people. Uh, we eventually did a couple of private equity transactions there. So as I became an executive, uh, we had two PE sponsored transactions. So successful exits. Two different and, times, um, two, 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 two times. times. Okay. All yep. Right. Yep. So that, that was an incredible opportunity. We were ultimately acquired and we, uh, we functioned as a, as a wholly owned subsidiary. So that was, that was a really good opportunity for me as an executive that I saw that not just the scaling of a business, uh, you know, coming from kind of that entrepreneurial phase to, you know, really scaling out a business and, and what you need to do to, you know, standardize your, your processes. But then going One, through those private mm, equity transactions, yes, getting acquired, yes. just world-class mm -hmm. education for sure. Yeah, you beat me to it. I was just about to say the same thing. I mean, what a wonderful experience. First of all, you start out in startup with a little kind of some friends. Oh, I was going to say family owned, but a couple of buddies owned it, which is yeah. unique, you know, in and of itself, right? Just that environment. And then to go through two different transactions with two different PE firms while getting promoted. And oh, by the way, surviving the PEO transactions and not getting <laughs> right you know, kicked out or whatever, which happens so often. And then yeah. those new P and then both of those PE firms going through both of those and them trusting you and you building those relationships, relationships for them to say, okay, this Brady guy, who's this Brady guy? Yeah. He's pretty good. Let's, let's promote him some more. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. That's a, that is, that is not a small thing. I just want to pause right there for the listeners because if, if anybody's listening to this episode and you don't understand how PE works, I mean, so often there are changes, not all the time, but, uh, you know, PE comes in, they bring their own people in or whatever. I mean, I don't see a lot of situations like Elliott Management Group that have gone through changes like that, that ended up bringing somebody like you along that was there from the beginning and keeping them as the CEO. Like, I, I do not see that very often. So congratulations. Yeah. No, you, that was I appreciate it. No, you, you nailed it. In fact, you know, the original founders, I think they, they made it through uh, the first transaction, right? <laughs> they, they ultimately off boarded. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, as they off boarded, I was, you know, next in command and was given the opportunity to, you know, step in to run the business. That's when we mm. went through a subsequent P transaction. Mm. But yeah, to your point, if you, you know, <sighs> if you can uh, navigate a successful you know, private equity sponsorship and have a good exit. That's just a credential in terms of your professional pedigree. You can lean on for the rest of your life. You learn a lot through that experience, just in terms of how to professionalize a business, how to manage financials, how to, you know, work with uh, a group of investors that have a defined playbook. They're looking for certain returns on the investment, just yeah. World-class education. Mm, not to end the, yeah, totally agree. Now, when you got promoted to CEO, that was a moment, right? Did you, were you call, did you call your wife? You're like, Hey, we're going to dinner tonight. I just kept, promoted. that's a, that's a, that was a major moment for you, right? It was. Yeah. You know, it was that, it, it was that rare, uh, I don't want to say rags to riches, but I, you know, we, we reflect on how we started at that business, that $500 in our bank account, Honda civic and, <laughs> you know, living in, uh, uh, less than favorable conditions, you know, in, a, in a, an apartment there in downtown Portland. And, um, you know, ultimately when, when I was able to get that president CEO role, uh, I think it was just gratitude. You know, I felt, mm. uh, if I'm being honest, you know, you feel inadequate, you feel, yes. um, 
there's a lot of imposter syndrome you've got to fight. Mm -hmm. And so you, you know, you have to fight those voices in your head and uh, kind of reflect on what you've accomplished. And, um, you know, you may not be qualified, but hopefully you're capable, you know, of doing the job, but it was, we knew even at the time that was a world-class opportunity and it, it forever changed our life. So it has really been the foundation for everything I've done since then. How was the board at that time? Uh, was it strong enough where there were some good mentors and advisors on there? Or did you have some other people you were leaning on? Like, who, because I've been, a, I've been a CEO and a president of a couple of $40 million companies myself, uh, not to mention yeah. our recruiting firm, RiderFlex. And so I, I know personally that being a CEO can be a lonely, scary place. Who did yeah. you who did you lean on early on there? Who was your go to? Uh, I don't know if you want to mention names, but yeah, there you know, there's been a, a handful of influential people. In fact, uh, it's funny. I just I, I did a LinkedIn post uh, yesterday morning, uh, and I was just you know reflecting on you know my journey over the last 20 years and a handful of people that you know I think were really influential, both from a mentorship standpoint and just extending mm. opportunities to me. You know, I, uh, I'd like to think that, you know, the opportunities I was given, again, I was never qualified for them. I didn't have the, the credentials to take on that next role. But, um, but yeah, those people that give you opportunities, they believe in you, they lift you up when you fall down. I mean, they just, myself, have been really pivotal, you know, throughout my career. And there were some, you know, both at a board level and also behind the scenes that uh, there was a lot of rough edges, you know, as a first time executive. I was, uh, I was kicked out, you know, more than, more than one board meeting, I was asked to excuse myself. So, you know, you work, work through that and you smooth out the rough edges and you, you figure it out, but yeah, yeah when, you're, along the way. when you're out in the hallway of the hotel or wherever the board meeting is, and they're, they're all sitting in that conference room, you're out there going, Hmm, I wonder if they're, if they're, 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 they're trying to decide right now, whether or not to fire me. <laughs> no, exactly. I heard more than once, like Brady, maybe it's a good time for you to step outside for a few minutes. So, <laughs> so good. You, you only live uh, once. You got to go strong. Uh, that is so good. You know what the, for me, the board meetings, I'm sure it does the same thing for you. Right. Like just, first of all, getting ready for them takes several days and you get the board book ready, you go and numbers ready, you're trying to study the numbers and you're trying to prepare all the questions that, you know, certain board members are going to ask. Can you, then you got that one board member who's kind of an asshole and you're like, okay, let me, let me, <laughs> let me call Fred. I'm going to call what I, you know what I used to do, Brady. I would, so I would always, I knew who was going to be the toughest, right? Usually yeah. like there was always like one or two board members that are always just going to push your buttons a little so I would send them the board book before everybody else. And then I would set a one-on-one -on -one phone call with that person before oh, the board so meeting. Smart. Super smart. And I'd be like, Hey, let's just, you can just go ahead and beat the shit out of me now. And then that way, when we get to the meeting, it's all good. <laughs> oh, that's so brilliant. I'm, I'm going to borrow that. That, that really is. Yeah. That's really a smart tactic. You know, I, yeah. one thing I've learned with boards, I know you have a lot of CEOs and, and budding entrepreneurs that will interact with boards one day is it, it really is a relationship that you have it to is. manage yes. as an executive. Yep. And uh, I've learned from the very beginning that, you know, you have a small window of time as a first time executive mm. where you can establish the rules of engagement with your board. You know, it's, that is so true that, you know, that window's open where it's how involved do you want them to be? And, you know, to mm -hmm. what degree do you want to communicate on the inner workings of the business? And so you have to be very thoughtful around, I'm setting up this relationship and those mm. rules of engagement and I need to do it right because it's really hard to change that once the mold kind of sets. 
right? Oh, that, is, that is good advice right there, Brady. That's good stuff. Yeah, you're totally right. Once they get into a rhythm, trying to change them later. I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. It, is a, it is a big part of the job. If, uh, you know, or if there's a PE firm, especially if you've got an aggressive PE firm that has more than 51% of control of the cap table and they're calling every day saying, hey, why did you buy an extra case of toilet paper last week or whatever? That's right. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You've, I know you've been in that world. The fact that you use that, that example, I, I remember <laughs> yeah, one year <laughs> we were, we were trending off of EBITDA off of our revenue targets for the year. It was summertime. And, uh, and, and one of the, one of the board members who represented the PE firm called and said, Hey, we need to get really draconian with costs, you know, to, to, to get this EBITDA target dialed back in. And it wasn't a big miss. Yeah. And, uh, and so we were, we were asked to do things like, go to one-sided printing on business cards, canceling, <laughs> you know, coffee service, um, you know, not sending employee plaques monthly, doing it quarterly. Uh, I mean, those make no mistake. Peas will do what's necessary to hit those. Yes. Targets. It's no it's game. Tr- it's true. Uh, totally true. Yeah. You've lived it. Oh my gosh. We could do another, we could do a whole, whole other episode on it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Great career there, though. Really, congratulations. You're there almost 17 years, right? I mean, 16 and a half years. What uh, did you get recruited? Did you get a phone call? What Talk to me about how you, you left there. Go ahead. And then you went to work for Payscape, I think. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so Glassdoor does this like highest rated CEOs thing every year. Yeah. And uh, I want to say it was in 2017. This is not like a humble brag, but it fits into it. So that year, uh, I think I was nominated for for third or fourth highest rated CEO. Oh, cool! Uh, in 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 the country, so that it's Congrats. a pretty visible accolade. I appreciate it. Nice. It's nice. um, so you know, it's pretty visible. It really gets your name out there. They do a good job promoting it, and um, and so when that happened, when 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 I received that that recognition. It, it really opened the floodgates where combined with my, my private equity um, background and successful transactions, it opened up a, a lot of people who said, hey, we're looking for a CEO who's not a boardroom CEO. You know, he or she's willing to roll up their sleeves and be in the fight and scale out a business and all the things that, you know, so many companies are looking for. Mm-hmm. And then you have that credential of the glass door. Um, and so, you know, at that time, I'm coming up on a decade and a half and- yeah you know, really felt like not to sound cliche, but, you know, we had to get out of our comfort zone and try something new and go to, you know, a new business. Hmm. And so, you know, it's really cool company out of Atlanta, uh, Payscape. It was, uh, it was founder led still co-CEOs. They were EBITDA positive growing nicely, uh, in the FinTech space. And, uh, and we got to know each other. They said, Hey, listen, like we have kind of hit our ceiling in terms of how to grow the business. They, they were entrepreneurs through and through. Okay. And the business was just kind of at that inflection point that then they needed to bring in maybe some, you know, professional leadership. Mm-hmm. So spent a lot of time with them, getting to know each other, a lot of hikes up in the mountains of Utah. And, uh, and we ultimately said, listen, let's, uh, let's do this. I'll relocate my, my family with four kids in tow to Atlanta. <sighs> you know, I'll take over the day to day for Payscape with, uh, with a goal to do, uh, some kind of transaction, whether it was an IPO or a PE back deal. Okay. And, uh, and that's how that happened. So yeah, we went out to Atlanta. They, you know, gave, uh, gave me a lot of jurisdiction over the business and I was there about two and a half, three years with, with that company. Equity. Yep. 
Yep. Yeah. That, so, yeah. Yep. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no. So you're, you're exactly right. That was, um, that's kind of the idea that, yeah. uh, you know, at that stage of your career, things like salary become, they're important. Mm-hmm. You need to buy groceries mm-hmm. and, you know, pay for your home and go on a vacation once a year. But, uh, you, you increasingly look for, you know, a seat at the proverbial table. So mm-hmm. they were really generous with equity. We knew we were be doing a transaction. Uh, you know, they were asking me to be really hands-on with the business and, and so, yeah, we went out and uh, we, we had a successful transaction about two and a half years uh, after getting there. So that, that was that's, great. A, that's a quick, that's a quick turnaround. Congratulations. Uh, that's Thank pretty, you. that's moving pretty fast. I mean, heck it, it takes six months almost sometimes to get through the due diligence and the transaction piece. So you, you started that. That was pretty quick. Nice. Yeah. We, well, we had a great team. They, you know, they had all the pieces in place. It's again, you're just kind of bringing the playbook of what you've learned from scaling a business. Uh, you know, you can, you know, around the corner, you know what the mistakes are and you've, you've been to that show before. So a lot of it was just bringing that experience and really good support from those, you know, co-founders uh, you know, the, the FinTech space is really hot. It was hot then. And so we, we just mm-hmm. kind of captured all those tailwinds and we're, we're able to take the, the business to market and found a, a great private equity to, to partner with. So no, good, how- good run. My- Congratulations. My first question is, how come you didn't take some time off? I mean, you went right to work for Dwala. Why didn't you like take six months off and like just chill? Yeah, that's, 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 yeah, I've got, there's some issues that I need to work out. I don't know what they, (laughs) because I, to your point, I did that with Elliott Management and Payscape. I think Uh, I I had maybe one week break between the two, you know, after 15 or 16 years. mm. Um, yeah, same thing. You know, when uh, when we did the the Payscape transaction with with Parthenon Capital there out of Boston, uh, we just we immediately went on an M and A binge. So within six months, we as the parent company now under private equity sponsorship, we went and acquired four companies with 30, 30, uh, 30 million plus EBITDA between those four companies. Oh, so, and Dwala and Dwala was one of them. So Dwala, uh, Dwala wasn't one of them. So oh. Payscape is the parent company. I'm president of that company at the time. We uh, we go and we start acquiring a bunch of businesses and we're doing integrations and bringing the teams together. You know, we went from a few hundred employees to a thousand employees, over a okay. thousand employees uh, okay. in a matter of six months. So yeah, at that time, you know, my time had really run its course. I came in and helped, you know, do a transaction with Payscape. Uh, you know, I never, I never really loved the large thousand plus employee businesses. And so mm-hmm. I, I went to the board at that time and I said, Hey, listen, like I've, I've done my job. We're bringing on a lot of executives through these M and a deals that are all going to need operating roles. Um, you know, let me keep my equity in the business. I'll roll it forward and then I'll go, you know, do it again. And that's when I was introduced to, uh, to Dwala. So Dwala was totally separate. That was just the, the next venture post-transaction. Mm, okay. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Uh, were you introduced to Dwala through, by this time, you knew a bunch of people in the space and you probably knew somebody or did you get a call from a recruiter or do you remember how that happened? Well, this is a, this is a really good tip. So I'd love to share this with the audience. Yeah. So I, yeah. you know, I obviously had relationships with, with private equity. Private mm-hmm. equity is generally, you know, growth stage or later stage companies. And mm-hmm knowing I wanted to get closer, not to start up, but maybe scale up, right? There, you've got good product market fit. Mm-hmm. You've dialed in your operations. You know, there's revenue traction. That's kind of the sweet spot that I really mm-hmm. love. And, um, 
And so I didn't want to tap into my PE network that, you know, as a private equity, you've got portfolios of companies. And often once you're an established commodity with private equity, it's, it's not hard to get plugged into new businesses, right. And in these Mm -hmm. portfolios. And so I switched it up and I said, I'm going to talk to a bunch of venture capital. I'm going to go the VC route. Okay. So I literally started cold calling uh, and cold emails, VCs all around the country. Uh, really? To, to introduce myself and my background and said, this is what I've done. When you look at your portfolio is, do you have any, you know, holdings that could benefit from somebody like me? So Great I move. really networked through the VCs, you know, all over the country. And I looked at, uh, no exaggeration, maybe 15 or 20, you know, businesses that needed, you know, a, a career uh, CEO who knew how to scale up a business. And, uh, mm. and ultimately I was introduced to Dwala through one of Dwala's venture capital foundry group out of Boulder. Who's a real oh, foundry. Oh yeah. Well, I'm in Colorado. So yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Brad Feld. Yep. And all so, yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah. Yep. So good friends with Brad Feld. Chris Moody is a partner there. He sits on yeah. Dwala's board. So I literally mm-hmm. reached out to Brad one day and said, this is what I do. And he's like, all right, I'll connect you with Chris Moody. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, did the rounds with the board and traveled out to Des Moines, and it was a great fit. So they were getting ready to replace the uh, similar to Payscape, the, the the founder CEO. They were going to bring in the next you know wave of leadership. So just perfect timing. Nice. That is a you know that's so awesome for the listeners to hear. Here's an established executive that's kicked ass his whole career, several successful exits, could have tapped into his current network could have called PE people could have just went to work for another PE based portfolio company, but stressed yourself, challenged yourself, started making phone calls to VCs who you didn't even know cold calls, even cold calls. That is, that's pretty good. I love that Brady. That's, that's pretty good. You know, for all these people, for all these people sitting around, Oh, I can't find the, the, the career I want. I can't find the job I want. I'm not, you know, nobody's offering me anything. It's like, okay, well, how many phone calls did you make today? Well, I put out a one LinkedIn post. So I was like, okay. <laughs> no, it's, you're, you're so smart and it's so true. You know, I, my kids don't like that approach to life sometimes, but I, I remember my, my, my newlywed wife there in Portland, you know, I had that commission only job and I said, okay, hon, you got to like go find a job. Like we, we can't survive on grocery store samples forever. And, uh, and she was like, well, where do I even look? And I, I remember I brought her into the office. I handed her the yellow pages. and I was like, start calling people. Like, just start calling and asking, you know, who's hiring. Yes. And, uh, you know, it sounds outdated, but I really believe in that. Just, you know, good old fashioned work ethic that if you do the work and you make the relationships, it, it'll, it'll work. It works for you. Couldn't agree more. And for the listeners, look, you don't, even though, even though Brady was a 4.0 student, but you don't have to be like, you don't have, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. You don't have to have the highest IQ. If you have good people skills and yeah. great work ethic, and you have fairly good communication skills, well, you're going to do well. If you'll just hustle, it. It, it really is just, I, I can't it, it, emphasize it enough. Like if you'll just get your ass up every day and hustle, it's amazing yep. what can happen, you know? It so really much opportunity. Is. You know, it, it really is. It's, it's the land of opportunity. I see it every day. You know, there's people of mediocre backgrounds. They didn't go to Ivy League schools. They, yeah. you know, come from humble beginnings, but they have grit and work ethic and tenacity. 
and they're humble and they, they yep. build those relationships and you can be very, very successful. So I totally yeah. agree with you. I'll take, I'll take those people on my team every time, every time. Any day. Any day. <laughs> yep. Give us, give us the Douala overview. Give us the three minute pitch for everybody that's wondering what the heck are they even talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. And by the way, it's Douala, D-W-O-L-L-A.com, Douala.com. Give us the overview, Brady. Go for it. Yeah, Douala is awesome. So, you know, as I was looking at these various tech companies, uh, you know, primarily in the payment and fintech space, I had known coming from 20 years in fintech, I had heard the name Douala, but I, I couldn't really articulate what they did in, in the payment space. And so when I got to know them, what I learned is that um, they move money. So account to account money movement, primarily ACH in mostly a B2B or B2C transaction. Uh, I just saw this world-class tech stack and, and the, the CEO at the time who is still on the board, good friend of mine, Ben Milne, you know, he admittedly said, listen, I'm not a go-to-market guy. I don't, I've never scaled out revenue and sales teams. Mm. He was a, a product focused, you know, engineer trained mm -hmm. type CEO. And I looked at Dwal and I said, okay, payments is blowing up. Uh, account to account money movement is a really exciting payment rail that has a lot of upside and opportunity. And I saw just this diamond in the rough. Mm. So I came on board, I think a week after COVID started and um, <laughs> it was, you know, it was, I use the analogy, like, you know, I remember doing podcasts at the time, like, all right, you're stepping into this fairly sizable company. Uh, COVID just started the business, you know, went through a riff, a, re a reduction in force. Uh, a lot of our, you know, performance and platform metrics were dropping overnight because of COVID. What was that like? And, uh, I said, you know, it was like, it, it, it's, it's like this battlefield commander jumping out with his troops and meeting them on the way down, you know, like you're, you're jumping into battle and meeting you're like the people you're going to be fighting with on the way down. So it was interesting, but, um, yeah, dwell, dwell is amazing. So, you know, we power these account to account money movement transactions, uh, and the business has just grown, you know, grown and it, it scaled up so quickly. So, so to give you a couple numbers, you know, when I came on board, I think the business was processing about 12 billion a year in payment okay. volume. So all okay. the clients that use the Dwalla API and mm -hmm. platform move about mm -hmm. 12 billion worth of money through, through our platform. Coming into this year, so I've been here about 18 months, we had grown that number uh, to about 20 billion. Nice. We left nice. last year at 35 billion. Oh, I see. So okay. In a matter of 12 months, we went from 20 to 35 billion. Uh, and we'll probably do closer to 60 billion at the end of this year. Wow. So Dwalla was just positioned really nicely with, you know, the digitization of payments because of COVID and what that was forcing, you know, companies to do. Hmm. And, uh, and it was just not to sound cliche, another great business, right time, right opportunity. And, and it really motivated a team, you know, to, to kind of capitalize on the work they had done. For for layman's terms, uh, I'll ask you a couple of questions from an ignorant ignorant perspective. You know, when you payment to payment, so what does that mean? Uh, do you? It's a it's a software or it's an app I can use on my phone. Like if me recruiting firm Riderflex wants to send money to one of our vendors, I can use Dwalla to do that. What? Give me some yeah. more layman layman terms example. 
Yeah, it's, I'm so used to speaking to a payments audience. That's okay. So <laughs> it's, yeah, so uh, really think of it as like a Venmo for businesses. So, uh -huh. you know, we, we will have a business come to us. They, maybe they built an app or they've created a software. You know, we've got, I wish I could say names, but we, we literally have, you know, Fortune 500s all the way to tech startups. And they'll say, okay. I've developed, I've created a software and within that software, we want to have some kind of payment capability. So mm. uh, maybe within that software, they want to embed a payment, a payment engine where they can mm. build their customers or they can build their clients. Mm. So what they'll do is they'll take Dwalla's API, they'll build out a payment gateway or a dashboard or whatever right UX that can initiate a payment. Mm. And then we're the ones that are sending and receiving those funds between the different banks on the back end. So we, we you, can withdraw. Hmm, I see. I see. That's right. So that's the money movement piece. So we, do you, do you, you make will, your money we'll do from the, do you make your money from the use of the API and the software or on the transaction of the money movement from, from place to place or both? That's smart. Yeah, it's both. So we, we have a somewhat unique pricing model. So similar to the SaaS world where you have a, a subscription fee, we have a recurring subscription fee and, and then more payments, historically in payments, you'll pay on a per transaction basis, either a percentage of the transaction. So if you run a Visa and MasterCard, you'll pay two, three, four percent of that transaction to the processor and to Visa and MasterCard. Mm. In, in our space, the great thing about account to account payments, primarily ACH, is you, you pay pennies for a transaction where you'll pay two or 3% using a card. So that right. that's really our competitive advantage is we'll charge on a per transaction basis, but it is 90, 85% cheaper than running a similar transaction over a Visa and MasterCard network. So it's really an alternative payment rail to taking a credit card. So right now, some of our clients, they pay us through ACH. Yeah. Are they using a platform like yours to do that? Most of the time they'll be using their bank. So, you know, legacy banks, they will, you know, you can initiate uh, an ACH payment directly from your checking or savings or, you know, your commercial line. Okay. So if it's, you know, if it's low volume, I'm going to send one or two transactions a month. A, a bank is more than sufficient. Our, our clients are people like Rally or Goat or, um, you know, really large insurance companies that I wish I could name that they're sending, you know, if, if not millions, minimally thousands of transactions a month. And not only I do see. they need to send a high velocity of transactions, but they need ledger capabilities and they need to be mm. able to do accounting and they need, you know, fraud and, and risk loss mitigation tools. So that, that, that's the Dwalla platform is we not just I use see. the money, but then I we've see. got all the functionality that sits around it. I see. Okay, that makes sense to me because when you first said about all the ACH stuff, I'm like, well, does, don't don't people just do that to the banks now? But now I get it. Okay, thanks for educating me on that. I, I yeah. okay, now now I understand. If it's so much cheaper than using your corporate card to pay because Amex is charging you three percent or whatever, why isn't everybody doing that? <laughs> well, there's there's a big yeah, there's a big movement underway. So I was actually on. Um, I actually headlined a, a on a panel for Credit Suisse uh, earlier today with a thousand plus 
institutional investors and corporate clients in attendance. And it was exactly on this topic. You know, Visa and MasterCard have had these monopolies, uh, both from a consumer standpoint. So I go in and pay, you know, for my meal at a restaurant, mm -hmm. but also in a B2B environment as businesses need yes. to transact with yes. each other. Yeah. And uh, and they, they've gotten really greedy, right? You're paying two, three, four percent. And, and that can be really expensive for a business, um, mm -hmm. you know, especially those lower margin businesses like restaurants to, to, to pay those fees. And so what's starting to happen is we saw this with Amazon in the UK. Amazon said, we're not going to accept a visa anymore in the UK. So they're starting to crowd out Visa and MasterCard as, as a as a payment option Wow! Uh, in order to introduce things like direct account to account transfers, like what, what Walla does. So Whoa, that is, that is a, it, that's a big move right there for these and MasterCard. It's, they're like, Oh it's shoot. <laughs> it's big. And you, you know, if you have a Costco membership, you know, you go to Costco and they only, they only take certain types of credit cards because mm. They have negotiated with Visa for basically a, a direct buy rate, and they've said we don't take any other cards because of the, because of the high fees associated with those cards. So yeah, it's interesting. I you know our client growth is has, has increased upwards of a hundred percent year over year. So when you look at our gross payment yes. volume, you know jumping fifteen billion in a year. Uh, you know our client growth. I it, it's not because we're awesome. I'd like to think we're awesome, but it, it's more so because of, I think, this big push to get away from the card networks towards account to account money movement. It, it's more cost effective. It, it can happen faster. It's just uh, a lot of a lot of tailwinds behind that space. Wow. I really appreciate you educating me on this. And I know there's going to be some of the small business owners and buddies that I know that are going to be like, what? Okay, hold on. I didn't know this because what I'm hearing you say, and I'm going to get some of the verbiage wrong is banks aren't really set up to do you and your bank can't really do thousands of ACH stuff really easily or, and it's not really set up for that. And then you're also um, pushing out Visa and MasterCard and Amex to a certain degree. And you're this other option that is faster, cheaper, safer, easier to use right. all the above. Well, that, okay. Pretty right. good. Yeah, right. you, know, you nailed it. You nailed it. Yeah, it's kind of a complicated space, but um, I, I'm sure you and your listeners have obviously heard of like Stripe, for example. Mm -hmm. Stripe is uh, what, what was their most recent valuation? Seventy billion or something like that. But uh, Stripe mm -hmm. is really similar to us that they do card issuing, so they can set up Visa and Mastercard for businesses. They have an ACH product, um, but it, it, again, where Dwala really shines is a lot of our clients have these fairly sophisticated fund flows requirements where they say we need to pay this business and then we have to pay consumers and then we need to route transactions through various banks. And that's where, again, using our API and kind of our financial mm. institution ecosystem that we've set up, we, we can usually create pretty easy solutions that, um, you know, these large corporate clients are asking for. So re really cool product, really cool space. Yeah. Are you going to, are you, is your goal to take them public or is your goal to take them to a transaction? Well, so we're venture backed right now. We just did our series B. Um, we closed on our series B round that was oversubscribed summer okay. of last year. So that, that's a good question. You know, the business is growing really quickly right now. Uh, I would envision that our next step will either be a, a private equity 
transaction. So some kind of private equity sponsorship. Mm -hmm. IPO is is always on the table. We've looked at M and A. If you IPO, if you if you IPO, I want you to call me and be like, hey, listen, man, we're IPOing next week. Don't miss out on it because I want to get in on that. I want to. I, I want to buy. I will. Yeah. <laughs> I will. Yeah. So they're they're all on the table. We. I think that we'll probably start to look at it uh, maybe early 2023. We have a really nice growth year set up for 2022. So we'll, we'll kind of pause and see what we want to do next, maybe 12 months from now. Wow. I learned, I've learned a lot. You taught me a lot. I appreciate you bringing that down to a thousand feet for us, for us beginners here to, to learn about it. Thank you. And that'll help some of our yeah. audience too. Awesome. Congratulations on, on the growth and everything. Um, Thank you. And it is Dwalla.com, D-W-O-L-L-A.com. Uh, by the way, if you want to look up Brady Harris, he loves to, he loves to get uh, LinkedIn connections, and then you can hit him with a bunch of sales messages because he really loves yeah, those. Yeah, hit me up. Hit me up. <laughs> He's on LinkedIn. Yeah. You know what? Isn't it funny? And I want to ask you a few more questions here because I know we're almost out of time. It's interesting on LinkedIn, right? Like, like I mean, hey, I, I sell too, right? Like, I, I own a recruiting firm, so I use LinkedIn for – networking and selling, but some of the cheesy sales messages and people just can't even be creative anymore. You know, you're using these chat bots and all this other stuff. It's like, come on, man. Like, can't you just every once in a while. And I get probably 25 a day of somebody trying to just whatever, you know, sell me. something. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got one the other day. It was really good. I won't mention the guy's name, but super personal it wasn't an auto typed deal. You could just tell, right? You could just tell this guy yeah. sends me a nice little personal note. He mentions the Rider Flex podcast and the note. And then he calls my cell phone. Now, oh, wow. you know, he got my number. I don't know how. He calls my cell phone, leaves me a very nice, very personal voicemail. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, out of all of the bad sales stuff I get every day, it's amazing how limited it is for, for a really good salesperson to make a connection. They just, they just don't do it very often. Yeah. Anyway, I, anyway, to my, my point of that story was I called the guy back. I called the guy back. I, I said, listen, I'm, I'm yeah. calling you back primarily just to tell you a good job. I'm not sure I'm going to buy whatever it is you're selling, but I just wanted to tell you great job. And by the way, come work for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so true. You, yeah, that's my experience as well. You know, you see a lot of kind of spray and pray techniques out there. Yes. And I, you know, I have a soft spot for, for sales. I mean, it, it right. was my upbringing and I know how, how hard that is and how big of a grind. So I, I, I definitely try to err on the side of being gracious, you know, gracious. With, with those yeah. that are trying to yeah. earn yeah. a living in sales, but yeah, you're right. You know, I'll, I'll occasionally get that message. It's well-researched. They, they reference whether it's podcasts I've been in on or, you know, articles mm-hmm. that I've pushed out or previous roles that I've been in, you just tell they've done their homework and it's very thoughtful. And you're definitely giving your be- yourself a chance to get, uh, to get a response. That's right. It takes That's more right. work, but you know, yep. I'm with you. I want to ask you a couple of questions here as we wrap up almost done. Um, kind of what I call kind of outside the lines questions. Uh, feel free to pass on any of them if you want to, but uh, a couple of bigger topics that are facing CEOs these days uh, that I know people like you are, are having to deal with. First one is this whole COVID vaccinations, masks, rules, making employees do certain things. I don't know if you want to touch on it. I'm curious, what, what are you currently doing? What, what's your plan moving forward? 
Um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, it's it's difficult. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I would say generally speaking, I've tried to take an approach to our business and our policies that have empowered individuals to make decisions for themselves. Okay. You know, I, I, I believe that as adults, you know, we can make responsible decisions and we should empower people to, to, to make adult decisions. We we're, we're really lucky in this sense. We, you know, we have a, a nice headquarters here in Des Moines, but when you look at our employees, we're about 50, 50, in state versus out of state. So we've, oh, okay. we've been recruiting a lot of employees all over the, the, the country. I think we've mm-hmm. hired 30 people in the last two months, give or take. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to gra- grapple as much with, you know, mask yeah. policies and vaccination policies. We're able to skate by on some of the federal mandates, you know, that are, okay. that are in the courts right now. Um, but generally speaking, we just ask people, you know, to, to be adults and to make adult decisions. If we're holding an in-person conference, you know, we'll say, Hey, if you're more comfortable in a mask, wear a mask, you know, here's the things that we're going to do to create a safe environment. Generally speaking, I've, you know, I've told the business that I I don't want to get caught up in, uh, you know, corporate, uh, corporate politics identity where corporations feel Mm. the need to take positions, you know, on Uh all things political. And I say, uh, we're, we're going to stand for principles. We're not going to take positions. Uh, and, and that's served us well. You know, you, you risk alienating your employees when you start taking these real definitive positions on, on some of the topics out there. So we've, we've, uh, we've tried to stay focused on the task at hand and yeah, not wait into that space as a business. Great answer, Brady. And, uh, we're doing the same here at Rider Flex. Several of, uh, in fact, the majority of the CEOs I have on the podcast are answering that way. There are some that that do think they should speak out and take sides on everything. I, I generally, we have the same rule. You know, my team always says, okay, well, here's the next hot button. Aren't we going to speak out on this? And I always say, no, we're not because, uh, yeah. Uh, Rider flex needs all clients and every hot topic that goes out there. It's usually 50, 50 split. And I'm not going to piss off half the potential client base. So no, we're not commenting. Well, that's <laughs> so smart. And, and not just your client base, but you know, as a business, when you step forward and you say, Hey, we're taking this position as a business, you're, you're also, you're also suggesting implicitly that you're speaking for your employees. Correct. Homogenous yes. group. And, exactly. and you're not, and right? you're not, like, you're not. So, so we're really <laughs> cognizant of that, that like, we don't want to take these positions that risk alienating, you know, our certain employees that may not agree with that. So again, we, we speak to principles, not positions. And that's, that's served us well, especially over the last, you know, year or two where corporations have felt compelled to step forward and, and sometimes take sides. I want to take that one step further and just say to the CEOs that might be listening don't make the mistake of listening to a few very outspoken, outspoken, aggressive employees that might be banging on your door at the office saying, we need to take a side on this and assume that that's how all the people at your company feel, because it probably isn't. <laughs> exactly. No, you're exactly right. And, you know, a common response I've, I've had, well, I appreciate people that are you know passionate about causes, as I say, listen, your employer is probably not the best vehicle or vessel to go, you know, Mm -hmm. fight for these causes that you believe in. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you want to go join a March, you want to go join a cause (laughs) like that's great, but you know, to ask your employer to do that on your behalf, I I think is, is, uh, is not the best use of, of one's employment. Love it. Yeah. Good answer, Brady. Thank you. I, I agree with everything you just said. Last question here. 
Well, actually two more really fast. We got like three minutes. First one is if you could call the young man coming out of Utah, I'm talking about college, you know, 21 years old. And you could tell him anything right now. If you could go back in time and tell him anything based on what you've learned, what would you say? Now, that's a really, uh, that's a penetrating question. You, um, you know, one thing that I wish I would have known then that I've, I've learned through trial and error over the years is that uh, not to get too spiritual or philosophical, but I, I think that we feel most in alignment with ourselves when we're living our lives in a way that are aligned internally with our core values. You know, and I, I always say to my kids, I said, listen, if you imagine yourself at your own funeral one day, and you're looking at people coming to the front and saying certain things about you, what do you want them to say? What, what would you want to hear, you know, at your own funeral? And, and I think that's a really helpful exercise to really dig down into what's most important to you. So, you know, the earlier Brady, I sometimes made decisions personally and professionally that were maybe focused on money or driven by ego or title or some of these things that I think wouldn't have past that funeral exercise, right? It wasn't mm. deep down a core value. Mm. So I would have been a little bit more intellectually and maybe emotionally honest with myself of like, what are those real long-term values that are really important to me? And then making life decisions that are based off of those or at least in alignment with them. Because I, I think we find a lot of inner peace, right? When we know we're living our lives in harmony with those core values. What is Brady's, uh, so, what is Brady's number one core value? Man, that's another, yeah, it's another great question. Um, you know, I think for me, one thing I've tried to embody and I, I hope people would say about me that I've worked with is, um, you know, I, I acknowledge that I've been really fortunate professionally. I honestly more so than I deserve. And I would love to hear at my funeral one day that, you know, to the people around me that I worked with, to my friends, to my coworkers, that I looked for opportunities, um, to bring them along, you know, to help other people be successful, to, to be of service to them when they needed it, to lift them up when they fall down. Um, and so I look for those opportunities, right? When, whether it's somebody looking for a job or somebody was laid off or somebody's going through something personal, I try to be a resource, you know, to those people that I care about. And I, I hope that would be reflected, you know, ultimately in how I, how I lived my life. Brady Harris, thank you so much for being on the Rider Flex podcast. Great stuff, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me.